Thank you for joining us with the Modern Law Library podcast. My name is Lee Rawls, and I'm here speaking with Alifair Burke, whose newest book is All Day and a Night, which is the fifth in the Ellie Hatcher series. Alifair, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm a former prosecutor, and I always say that first because I think it colors everything I've done uh, since then. Um, I teach criminal law and criminal procedure at Hofstra Law School. Uh, and I wrote, I started writing a first novel more than 10 years ago after I left the DA's office thinking that I had learned enough there to write one book and I would keep it up on my shelf and point to it and say, hey, I wrote a book. Um, but much to my surprise, I just published my 10th novel. Um, and they're, they're all crime novels and they're all kind of set in the world of um, kind of the place where police precincts and courthouses and the streets all meet. Um, so it, it all comes together. I kind of teach criminal law. I write about crime, and I always joke around, it's kind of all crime all the time. <laughs> now, you have uh, two different series, long-running series, and a couple of standalones, but your two series, I believe, is Samantha Kincaid, who I will admit I have not yet read, but want to now, and uh, Ellie Hatcher. And I guess Samantha is a prosecutor, and Ellie, who this book features, is an NYPD detective, but she does not originate from New York. She comes from Wichita, which I believe you did as well, right? Yeah, I grew up in Wichita, Kansas, and uh, when I was, it probably has something to do with the fact that I'm so obsessed with criminal law. When I was growing up in Wichita, there was an active um, serial killer there who called himself um, BTK, which stood for Bind, Torture, and Kill, which is kind of a not a good thing to hear when you're eight years old. Um, and I was always obsessed with um, crime. I still am. At any given time, I'm watching some story on the news or following some case um, from afar. But um, at the time, it wasn't from afar. It was right there. Um, and, and my experience of, of living in a place that you would think of as very safe and very quiet that was actually a very violent place to live um, becomes part of Ellie Hatcher's backstory. Uh, she grew up with a police officer who, you know, spent his own, his long career um, hunting a serial killer that he never found, much to his frustration. And his whole story is part of, you know, Ellie's childhood. And she now lives in New York and is a police detective there. So she's kind of a, a little bit of a fish out of water in a big city. There is a character who you introduce in this book, um, Carrie Blank. And what I found kind of fascinating, and I and I read this before I knew about your background, um, having grown up in Wichita and the BTK killer thing, is you have a scene at the very beginning where Carrie is a young girl, and she and her school fellows hear about this serial killer in the neighborhood. And it was an extremely vivid scene. So finding out that you kind of, you drew from your own experiences was, was really quite interesting. Yeah. I mean, it, and it's, it's always a question. And since it's, you know, we're all lawyers talking about this kind of stuff. There's, there's plenty of good reasons to keep facts from the public and to not reveal parts of an investigation, um, both for investigative purposes and also to protect the prosecution if it ever gets tried. There's all kinds of reasons to keep things secret. But the toll that that takes on the public, you know, when it's actually happening, when they don't have answers and they want to know if they're safe or not and they, you know, I don't know. I think there's a natural tendency when you read any kind of story about some horrible thing happening to a person, there's this tendency that you read it looking for the reason, right? Like you look for it, you you read those stories thinking, oh, so they did drugs or they were having an affair. Or like you're looking for the thing that they did 
that didn't make them deserve it, but that makes them separate from you. Like, well, I, I need to know I'm safe and this only happens to other people. And when you don't get that, and particularly when children have crazy imaginations because they have nothing to ground them in reality. Think about the stories you're told as a little kid, all of the, you know, Snow White, I mean, the horrible things, Cinderella, the horrible things that happen to people in these fairy tales. And when you grow up as a kid and you know someone's out there doing horrible things in close proximity to you and you have no information, the facts that children make up in their, in their circles out on the playground are far worse than anything that's happening in real life. Um, and that's kind of how everybody who grew up in Wichita at that time grew up. And that, that becomes part of um, Carrie's story. And Carrie Blank herself is affected directly because her sister is killed and she grows up to be an attorney. And when it looks like the man who was sent away for killing her sister perhaps didn't do it, that really kind of jolts the story into, into high gear. What made you decide to split the book between this longstanding character, Ellie Hatcher, and the experiences of this brand new character, Carrie Blank? Uh, I wish I could say it was a really conscious decision. Carrie was meant to be a very small character. Uh, and as I started writing the book, she just didn't go away. She kept showing up. I'm like, oh, okay, I guess she has a bigger role to play. And for a few months, I decided, you know, I'll kind of flirt with this idea of showing an investigation simultaneously from two people's perspectives. So it's happening in real time, and, you you know, you see Ellie working it on behalf of the prosecution, doing the fresh look investigation as part of a wrongful convictions case. And then you have Carrie, who you would think would be on the other side because her sister is a victim. She becomes convinced that the wrong person was convicted, so she starts to represent the defendant. And you, you see the same facts unfold from both of their perspectives. And I spent a, you know, a couple of months say, experimenting with form, thinking like this might actually work. Um, and and it was really mostly because that character Carrie kept coming back. And I think what I think what she adds to the book is not only a personal connection to the case because her sister was one of the victims, but the book becomes a lot about loyalty and family and where does your past fit into your present. And I think like a lot of people, particularly maybe lawyers, people who are drawn to the profession sometimes are very ambitious people. Carrie sort of succeeded past her family, past her station, that she got out of a really bad neighborhood and she wound up living dreams that her friends could never meet and her sister could never even have. And I found all of that really interesting territory. And once I imagined that past for her, I realized that she added a dimension to the book that would be missing if she were just a, you know, a very um, passing or fleeting character. So she became really a co-narrator. One thing I really enjoyed is, as I started reading this book, I, you know, I had not read the previous Ellie Hatcher books. And for our for our listeners, I was able to follow along with no problem. Um, but <laughs> I, I, I write them so that you can they really work independently. Yeah. And I think that really worked. But also, I kept encountering characters and I thought to myself, oh, I know this stock character. I know exactly, you know, you, you told me a little bit about, I know exactly how this is going to go down. I'll use the, <laughs> and then I was wrong. I'll use the example. There is a um, police officer, now retired, who, whose name is Buck Majors. And I'm, I'm from Chicago, uh, reporting here from Chicago. And I thought to myself, oh, I know who this is. 
you know, this is this is John Burke. This is the abusive police chief interviewer. He he probably beat this guy to get a wrongful confession and everything. And the thing is, you know, the way the book goes, nothing is cut and dried. You know, things aren't as black and white as you think. And I really, you know, I appreciate that in my in my crime reporting. Did you did you make conscious decisions to play against types? I guess or? I'm, I'm I'm probably uh, revealing too much of my my little tricks. <laughs> you know, I think when you meet new people, whether you meet them fictitiously on the page of a novel, or even when you meet somebody at conference or you meet somebody at dinner, there's a tendency to kind of say, "Oh, I've got this person's number," right? Like that you you look at sort of superficial traits and say, yeah, I, I know what to expect. And usually when you do that, you're wrong. <laughs> you might know the persona that they're projecting. You kind of are able to say like something about them that probably correlates with those observations. But when you take the time to get to know people, they're always more complex um, and have many more layers than you would ever guess if you're just taking a quick look at them. And I think that with fiction, when you're trying to surprise people, that's a way to make characters interesting is that they might seem one way. um, And when you actually take the time to look at their motivations and what they care about and what really makes them tick, that usually people are a lot more complex than you would ever guess. Because I think there's a tendency for us to try to pigeonhole people pretty quickly. And I think the same is with fiction. So it's probably true that if you pick up one of my books and you, somebody seems very like, oh, cut and dried, and I've seen this character before, they're probably the exact opposite. (laughs) You're actually the first uh, person we've talked to on the podcast who has written a longstanding series. And what I wanted to know about is when you're creating a series and you need to build a fan base and build a community, especially as a fiction writer, it seems to me reading reviews on these books and everything, your readers who have been with you from the beginning start to develop very strong opinions on what your characters would or would not do. And they they seem to take on a life of their own. How do you, as the writer of a series, deal with these expectations um, or people who think that they know their characters better than you? How do you manage that? Yeah, I, I think it's a big mistake to not care at all about what readers think. Like they're like thinking, oh, I'm just going to do my thing. I mean, at some point you have to write stories that somebody's going to want to read, but you don't have to please everybody. I think when you try to do that, then it's those voices get up in your head and you're probably never going to be able to create anything. So I don't try to think about that. I, I think I really know these characters and I have to do what I think is right for the characters and what I think they would do. And I was talking to a far more successful friend and he had had a book several years ago um, after the Iraq war started where the the character did something that was an objection to that war. And people wrote in saying, like, oh, that character would never do that. And his response was, of course he would, because he did it. <laughs> and I created the character and he did it, so of course that's who the character is. And at some point you have to just stand up and say that's who the character is. You didn't know them as well as you thought, just like we were just talking about with even secondary characters that you pigeonhole people. Everybody has a different conception of a reader, and I don't know how many people uh, saw the Jack Reacher movie. Did you see that movie with Tom uh, Cruise? I, I plead innocent. Or do you know of it? Okay, so um, <laughs> you know, in the books, yet. in the books, that character, Jack Reacher, is I think six foot four or six foot five, and 
he's constantly described as having, you know, fists the size of hams and his physicality is a big part of the character in a lot of people's minds. And then Tom Cruise shows up in the depiction and it's not just that people are going, Oh, I'm surprised. Readers send Lee Child hate mail saying, I'll never read you again and you're horrible. And, and it's ruined the books for me. And that I really don't understand because the book should exist separate and apart. But um, I heard Lee in an interview say that in a way it's a compliment because if they didn't care about the character, if the character didn't feel real to them, they wouldn't have this visceral reaction. So when I see readers very upset about Ellie's romantic choices or you know compromises she makes at work, I try to remind myself that it means that they really feel invested in the character and I've I must have managed to create someone who feels real to them. I think my very favorite review was from someone who gave the book five stars but said he had two quibbles, and they were this. First of all, Ellie would not drink Rolling Rock beer, and also he didn't picture her as a blonde. (laughs) (laughs) You you know, that's interesting. I don't think I've read the shows that I'm I'm taking my own advice and not reading online reviews. I I don't know that, but um, I've had people tell me that they don't believe she would read Rolling Rock. But again, she does, and so therefore she must, um, because she's you know she grew up in Kansas, and um, she needs to buy cheap beer, so she buys cheap beer. So that makes sense to me. And then not seeing her as a blonde, I think an interesting thing happens is a lot of authors, including me, um, you know, do a lot of publicity, and you're on social networking, and you do a lot of interviews, and people have a tendency to picture the character as the author at some point. And so I think as much as I describe Ellie as blonde, she looks nothing like me, a lot of people are like, oh, I just assumed Ellie looked just like you. And I find myself, I do that with friends' books I read. I picture the, I picture the characters as looking like the author, and then I'll see some paragraph where they describe the character's mustache. I'm like, oh, I totally forgot they had a mustache. <laughs> uh, so I think that's part of what happens. But again, I think it's... It's a good sign when you have people really care about the characters. I think it it means you're doing something um, unusual. It's not just a beach book. It's not just the plot keeps moving. It's if, if they really are following the characters over time, that's a great thing. Well, let's talk quickly about um, what looks to be an upcoming project. Uh, a book is coming out in November where you apparently got to work with Mary Higgins Clark, a total master of the genre. <gasps> Yeah, oh, we just goodness. finished it. Yeah, it's exciting. What do you think has changed in the whole genre of, of crime fiction from the time that Mary Higgins Clark started writing to to now and, and to the kind of books that you're publishing? Yeah, I think, I mean, she was extremely pioneering. Um, her first book, um, Where Are the Children, was a book that suggested child abuse and some very, very dark subjects. And also, you know, psychological problems. It was really a, one of the first psychological thrillers, even though people don't think of it that way. And she did it at a time when people really didn't talk about that. I mean, people didn't talk about people who did bad things to children for reasons that have nothing to do with children. Um, and she was able to write a novel that was um, very intelligent and very psychologically astute. Um, about those crimes without being purient and without being, you know, tawdry. And 
and I think that's a very difficult balance to to strike. If anything, the pendulum's gone the other way, where you see a lot of books where this stuff is described in in just such lurid detail and you know descriptions of people being tortured and things like that that is I find extremely uncomfortable um, and irresponsible, frankly. And the fact that she was able to raise a topic that was very real um, and important and not exploited is, I think, you know, a, a huge impact on the genre and the fact that she has continued to strike that balance of, of tackling difficult subjects but without um, putting Lord violence on the page is pretty pretty laudable. So I'm still sort of in awe of the fact that I can refer to her as her first name and <laughs> <laughs> exchange notes with her. And yeah, it's, it's, yeah, I've been reading crime novels since I was a little, little kid. And the fact that I'm working with Mary Higgins Clark, I still kind of wake up in the middle of the night going, wow, that's cool. <laughs> but we just finished today. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Well, and I would like to thank you because um, it, it does make me uncomfortable to the, the book, and I'm not going to be spoiling anything here, um, does open uh, with, with a woman's murder, but it does not feel exploitative in any way of violence occurring towards a woman. So I, I do appreciate that as Thank a reader. You. Yeah, it's really not necessary to have violence on the page. I, I, I just don't do it. Um, bad things will happen, but it, it, the reader's not sitting there while it's happening, if, that's me, if that makes sense. You're aware that it happened, but you don't have to experience it. I think one last question, how do you balance your work as a law professor and book tours and writing and and all the work you need to do? I think working at a law firm helped me. (laughs) Once you've worked at a law firm and you bill your time in six-minute increments, you become very aware of how you use time. And so I, you know, I'm very well organized. I keep a calendar. I try to plan things. When I'm behind, I make myself catch up. Um, You know, it takes a little bit of juggling. I'm lucky enough that um, law teaching is flexible so that I can plan that. I don't have people calling me at Friday at 6 o'clock going, oh, by the way, you need to be here for the next four days nonstop. So the fact that I control all of my work makes it so that I can plan it. And I'm probably unemployable in any other respect at this point because I've gotten so used to kind of being my own boss. And I'm a bit of a tough boss, but at least, you know, I'm the one kind of calling the shots and setting the schedule and um, I just I plan things out um, months and months and months in advance and try to try to stick to it as much as possible. So it it is all possible. It's probably a lesson that we can all be more efficient. <laughs> well, my Alec, friends I... joke around that if I uh, if fifteen minutes goes by and like we're just wasting time, they'll, they'll catch me doing something. <laughs> They're like, "You're working, aren't you?" I'm like, "Yep." Stop <laughs> being productive. This is your downtime. <laughs> But I, I want to use my downtime well, so that's my point. Is like I have tons of fun. We go on vacation. We do tons of fun stuff. I didn't mean to make it sound like I work constantly, but if at some point I'm, I don't just kind of tend to sit around and stare out in the space. <laughs> or if I do, I call it research. <laughs> well, Alifair, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And thank you so much for taking the time to read the book. Oh, I, absolutely. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks for having me.